Reflections on Homer's Iliad Produced by the Cornerstone Forum and narrated by Gil Bailey Part 1 So the title of this overall series is The Heroic Dilemma. And in the flyer that I sent out uh, uh, alluding to it, I quoted from James Joyce, the whole structure of heroism, he wrote, is and always was a damned lie. There is truth to this. There is also truth to its opposite. Those willing to be perplexed and confounded might arrive at a deeper truth than each of these by beginning with either one of them. Like all archetypes, the heroic one isn't latent until summoned by an independent situation into being. It works, unbeknownst to most, to bring into being situations that demand its energy. For the heroic archetype, once the demand is present, the archetypal urge is very often felt as an urgency. We need its energy and we need it now or we need it soon. Archetypes behave a, a sort of Einsteinian law where corresponding to the matter-energy relativity, there exists an energy-meaning equation. Now, that's a helpful division, I think, but it's a little bit misleading. William Blake, you know, said energy is eternal delight, and he's talking about both the meaning and the energy of it. So we might define archetypal energy as meaning in action. And we might define archetypal meaning as the energy of the archetype religiously experienced. The heroic archetype has and will play a prominent role in the shaping of the history of our species. The outstanding question is whether, in relative terms, we will sacrifice some of its meaning in order to have more of its energy or sacrifice some of its in energy in order to have more of its meaning. Much that has been said and written about the heroic myth and the hero's journey leads us to believe that that is an important issue for us. I think that the movement from an unconscious reliance on heroism's archetypal energy to an experience of heroism's archetypal meaning is for us in our time the heroic journey to be on. So to begin at the beginning, which is with Homer. First of all, I began to think of Homer as I prepared for this, as I began to think that the hero of the Iliad is Homer, not really Achilles. But I'd like to picture Homer for a second. Homer, of course, was the first one to begin this journey from heroism's energy to heroism's meaning. Picture him blind. The legendary Homer is blind. We don't know. We know almost nothing about Homer. The old quip about the Iliad and the Odyssey were either written by Homer or somebody else with the same name. Picture him blind. Some people could not picture him blind. The 17th century Englishman, Sir John Denham, wrote these verses. I can no more believe old Homer blind than those who say the sun hath never shined. The age wherein he lived was dark, but he could not want sight who taught the world to see. Denham wrote those lines about the time John Milton was 
going blind, after which Milton wrote Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Another little poem by Carl Shapiro. I have two today from Carl Shapiro. This is called A Drawer Full of Eyeglasses. I have a drawer full of eyeglasses, which Spinoza or Galileo would have given their eye teeth for. Green-black prescription glasses, glasses for reading or driving, even a reading lens for proofreading poems. What if a tornado ground them up with brick? What if they were melted by the master bomb, as the sands of the deserts were melted to balls of glass? What if I couldn't read the latest book on metaphor or guilt? What if I had to make up poems in my head, like Milton or Homer? So picture Homer, a little bit of a guy, blind, entertaining in these great aristocratic houses of his age, the has-beens or the would-be men of action. Now over the hill, but in positions of wealth and authority, in a no longer so primitively robust social order, living on nostalgia and listening to Homer tell him about it. If any ever stayed sober enough, or probably to put it better, if any of them ever had just enough wine to escape his conscious prejudices, but not enough wine to fall into his unconscious one, he might suddenly, in the midst of one of these rhapsodies, sit up and say, Wait a minute, Homer. What are you trying to tell us? And if that were to happen, the dialogue would be something like the dialogue described in Wallace Stevens' poem, The Man with the Blue Guitar. The poem begins this way. The man bent over his guitar, a spearsman of sort. The day was green. They said... You have a blue guitar. You do not play things as they are. The man replied, Things as they are are changed upon the blue guitar. And they said then, But play you must, a tune beyond us, yet ourselves, a tune upon the blue guitar of things exactly as they are. I sing a hero's head. Large eye and bearded bronze, but not a man, although I patch him as I can and reach through him almost to man. If to serenade almost to man is to miss by that things as they are, say that it is the serenade of a man that plays a blue guitar. So the fierce marauding Rambos of an earlier age were being romanticized the way we, we romanticize the cowboys and Indians, by a more settled descendant culture, to whom these marginally civilized ancestors seemed more admirable when safely on the other side of the grave from their lawlessness and terror. Theirs was an ambivalence about the quelling of violence. We have always been ambivalent about our own domestication. Some feeling that in the quelling of our violence, something is lost that we are then nostalgic for. Yeats, who's very keen on this, refers to it in one of his poems. He says, oh, what if leveled lawns and graveled ways where slippered contemplation finds his ease and childhood a delight for every sense but take our greatness with our violence? 
And there's been some hint of that all through human history. So the bard and the wine flowing together during the performance put these men in touch with their heyday or with a heyday which the combination of the singing and the wine allowed them to claim. And we're still in that same situation. The second poem by Carl Shapiro touches on that. It's called Human Nature. Human Nature. It goes like this. For months and years in a forgotten war, I rode the battle-grade diesel-stinking ships among the brilliantly advertised Pacific Islands, coasting the sinister New Guinea coast, all during the killing and hating of a forgotten war. Now, when I drive behind a diesel-stinking bus on the way to the university to teach Stevens and Pound and Mallarmé, I am homesick for war. So Homer had to make a living, and to do so he entertained his patrons and indulged their homesickness for war. But Homer had bigger fish to fry than that. He was in the process right under their noses of reinterpreting the world which to their ears he was so gloriously celebrating. He was reinterpreting the heroic age. Now Hesiod, who was a contemporary of Homer, in his work, in his major work, Works and Days, divided human history into five ages. Gold, silver, bronze, heroic, and iron. You notice the heroic is sort of down the list. It's the only non-metallic one, uh, and it's the one right before the sort of Hesiod version of the Kali Yuga, the Iron Age. It could be said, perhaps, that Homer, whether or not he knew of Hesiod's declension, describes the heroic age in such artistic terms that we can see in the middle ground, if you imagine a stage setting, we can see in the middle ground the great heroic deeds which were the distinctive feature of the heroic age. And in the iron foreground, the social catastrophe which resulted from these deeds. And in the gold, silver, and bronze background, the human longing which found in these deeds, it's only available form of expression, however crude it might be. Homer is the mythographer of his people's experience. George Steiner says that Homer is the historian of the unconscious. It was said of Emerson that he had the great gift to be able to take a man's false idol off its pedestal so tenderly that it seemed an act of worship. Likewise could be said of Homer in his work. So much of the Iliad and the Odyssey is an examination of the pathological dimension of the heroic code. But the diagnosis is performed by one who holds no one in contempt. Homer is the great compassionate one. And he has no contempt because those who are in the midst of that pathology are simply all of us humans. It's the human race's problem. I think it's healthy for us to see, to think of Homer 
and some of the other classical texts as Old Testament. We, we do derive our culture from the two great rivers, the, the Hebrew, the Western culture from the Hebrew and the Greek. And Homer was, for the Greeks, the Old Testament. There's an interesting relationship, I think, between Homer and the Old Testament prophets. Both were retelling the stories in order to illuminate their deeper meaning, and both claimed divine inspiration. The manifestly dynamic Greek culture found in Homer, and perhaps especially in the Iliad, its constitutive document, in the same way that the Hebrew people found in the Pentateuch its constitutive document, and the Christian culture finds in the New Testament. The high point of the Greek culture looked back to Homer as the one who defined the culture. For that Greek culture, the figures in the Iliad would have performed that imprinting, which the poet John Crow Ransom speaks of when he talks about the tradition, when he says, what these men had to eat and drink is what we say and what we think. The story of the Trojan War, this is what's so interesting, of course, the story of the Trojan War was already known in the same way that the migration out of Egypt into Palestine by the Israelites was already known. The story was already known. And also in the same way, what happened in Vietnam is already known. But the larger meaning of the story had yet to be discovered. What Michael Nagler says of Homer could be said of Shakespeare or Sophocles and others. He said, all is traditional on the generative level all original on the level of performance. That is to say, he is telling a traditional story. No one listening to Homer Rhapsody would have been in suspense about the outcome of the war. Homer, by the way, is not interested in the outcome of the war. He ends his poem before the war is over, walks away from it. But no one would have been in suspense about that. What they were hoping for, in addition to being entertained, was that his way of inflecting the story might add to its significance and meaning. So he's reinterpreting the facts with the aid of the muses. The muses are the daughters of Mnemosthenes. Mnemosthenes means memory. The muses are the daughters of memory. The movies Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, and others are not versions of who won, but attempts to find what it was that was lost. And what, if anything, might be found again if the story could be told the right way. The world happens twice, wrote William Stafford, once as we, once what we see it as, and second, it legends itself deep the way it is. It will seem professionally self-serving if I suggest it might happen three times. The third time, here, when we try to noodle out the legend. See? You don't mind if I throw that one in. So the mythological background to the Iliad. Iliad means the story of Ilium. Ilium is another word for Troy. It's not really the story of Ilium at all. The, the, if it were properly named, it would be called the tragedy of Achilles. Homer really wrote the first tragedy. Without Homer, 
Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides couldn't have done it in the same way that without Jeremiah, Isaiah, no Jesus. He couldn't have done it without that. Those the, the great tragedians couldn't have done it without Homer's example. It starts, now Homer doesn't take advantage of this legend, but it's, I think for us symbolically it's quite important. It all begins with the marriage, a marriage between Achilles' parents, Peleus and Thetis. Peleus is a mortal, Thetis is a goddess. Now, as we, sp- as we talked about in the, in the Dante series, I think we could, from an archetypal, archetypal point of view, understand the classical stories about the gods wanting to couple with mortals as a classical version of the incarnational impulse. Now, most of the time that happened, Zeus was the great philanderer. Most of the time he would disguise himself as some form and come down and and uh, seduce some mortal beauty. Here is a story of the gods and the mortals coming together that looks more promising. It's an actual marriage. It's it's respectable. It's appropriate. The ritual is being followed. You think, now this might come to something. Now, it, you know, if you're looking, hoping for an incarnation, so this might be it. Instead of, instead of producing these sort of half-breeds that are, you see what I mean? Now, here's what happens. It's all arranged. The wedding is taking place. All the important mortals are invited. All the gods and goddesses are invited except Eris the goddess of strife and discord, is not invited. Now, you wouldn't invite her either. I wouldn't either. To a wedding? See, there you have it. This is a false story, like like Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't invite Eris to the wedding. Don't invite Eris to the wedding. Spoil sport, she might be. She's the sister of Ares, the god of war. Let's have a wedding without Eris, please. Try it sometime. Well, that's the human. We know we that strife is tearing us apart, so what are we going to do? Well, she's excluded, left off the list. She doesn't take kindly to that. She comes up and throws like a grenade over the wall a little golden apple with a note on it saying, for the fairest. And as it's rolling across the the uh, trimmed green carpet there. (laughs) Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite look at it and say, well, who is the fairest? The goddesses have a little interest in finding out who is the fairest, so they can't decide. Well, one of those attending the wedding is the young prince of Troy, Paris, or Alexandros, He's the son of Priam. He's representing his father at the wedding. He's a young, attractive fellow, so they say, well, let's let Paris decide. And the goddesses start to bid up on this apple. You see, Hera says, I will offer you greatness. I will make you a king of Asia. And, and uh, Athena says, I will offer you wisdom and greatness in war. And Aphrodite says, I will offer you the most beautiful woman in the world. And, well, what shall we say? All of this because Eris was not invited. The hope is to have a wedding without 
stray. Wallace Stevens, in one of his poems, says, It is not enough to cover the rock with leaves. We must be cured of it by a cure of the ground or a cure of ourselves that is equal to a cure of the ground. It's not enough to cover the rock with leaves. It's not enough to have the wedding and leave Iris off the invitation list. So what's the result? Paris, of course, chooses the most beautiful woman, who's Helen, who happens to be married to the king of Sparta. But with Aphrodite's help, things can be arranged. The social result of trying to have the incarnational impulse wedding happen without strife, the social result is, mythologically, World War I. The Trojan War is the mythological first war. Biologically, the result of that wedding is Achilles, the son of, Pele of Peleus and Thetis, who is the tragic warrior. So both false stories start with apples of one sort or another. Take it metaphorically. So that's the background. The first few lines, the great opening of the poem, Again, I'm using the Fitzgerald translation. Anger be now your song, immortal one. Achilles' anger, doomed and ruinous, that caused the Achaeans loss on bitter loss and crowded brave souls into the undergloom, leaving so many dead men carrion for dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was done. Begin it when the two men first contending broke with one another, the Lord Marshal Agamemnon, Atreus' son, and Prince Achilles. Just a word here. Both Lattimore and Fitzgerald use a more uh, Grecian uh, pronunciation. They, they eliminate the Latin interface. And, and so I'm going to try to accustom myself to some of these changes instead of saying uh, Achilles, saying Achilles, and so on. The Achaeans, Homer doesn't use the word Greeks for the Greeks. They are the Achaeans are the Argives, are the Danaean. Um, so they just recognize those things. So back to the, back to the key. To the, the key is in the word translated here, anger. Often translated wrath. Uh, we will, I don't think any, as far as I can tell, I don't know Homeric Greek, as you know. As far as I can tell, there's no English word that does justice to it. The Greek word in its anglicized form is menis, M-E-N-I-S. And the question is, what does that mean? And what I thought we might do is touch on some various definitions so as to get an overall sense of an implication, because I don't think there's one definition that will satisfy all its, all its meaning. But before any is attempted, necessarily, other than anger or wrath, we might point out that the Iliad is, a poem, is, is as a poem not about war, the poem, he tells us what the poem is about right there in the first line. The poem is about a human emotion. And the other interesting thing we're told in the first few lines is that the poem is about that emotion breaking out inside the Argive camp, inside the Greek camp. And that's the two interesting things about the opening of the poem. It's about a human emotion 
called wrath. I think we might call it vengeful wrath. That gives us a little more hint of what it means. And it's about that emotion breaking out inside the camp. Now, this emotion, particularly when we begin to see its various nuances, is, I mean, I think we could admit that it is historically, socially, psychologically a problematic emotion. It has contributed to human history in a very peculiar way. You might want to get to the bottom of it. In the course of exploring this emotion, there are all, all emotions touch on each other. There are no walls separating the emotion. You know, passion, rage, love, fear. Uh, all of them touch each other different ways. So if you touch, it's like you touch on one, all the rest have are affected. And what Homer will do in the course of the Iliad and the Odyssey, well, the Iliad, which is focused on this on this uh, emotion, is bring all the others into it at one time or another. Julia Loomis wrote a book called Homer the First Psychologist, interesting title, and she, her translation for meanness was self-assertive drive. Bear that in mind when we get to the when we get to the end of the day's session. I want to come back to that. Uh, so anyway, the text goes on here for a second. Among the gods, who thought this who who brought this quarrel on? The son of Zeus by Leto, that's Apollo. Agamemnon angered him. And the, then the poem tells of how Apollo brought a plague on the Greek army, the Argive army, because Agamemnon had ill-treated one of the priests of Apollo. And we'll get a version of that story in a second. The priest is Chryses. Chryses comes to the Greek ships, which is their stronghold. with ransom, no end of ransom for his daughter. On a golden staff, he carried the gods' white bands and sued for grace from the men of all Achaea, the two sons of Atreus most of all. O captains, Menelaus and Agamemnon, and you other Achaeans under arms, let me have my daughter back for ransom as you revere Apollo, son of Zeus. The priest of Apollo, on a... On a uh, on a raid, on a plunder. That, by the way, this is a rough and tumbled world. Uh, these guys didn't get their provisions uh, by, uh, you know, by acts of Congress. They uh, or stock splits or whatever. They had to go out and plunder some other little town. Uh, and while they were uh, doing that, they would usually take uh, from the town after they had slaughtered the spouses and family members of some of the lovelies. In the town, they would take these young maidens as concubines. Pretty rough stuff. Well, anyway, one of them happened to be the daughter of the, of the priest of Apollo. And there is a revered tradition in the, in the heroic code that these supplicating vanquished ones must be respected at least. And here comes the old priest of Apollo with all this ransom begging in Apollo's name for the return of his daughter. The soldiers, when they heard his plea, murmured, behave well to the priests and take the ransom. Everybody knows you don't insult 
the priest of Apollo, and get away with it. Agamemnon would not have it so, because he was the one who took as his concubine the priest, uh, the, the daughter of the priest of Apollo. So he says, get out of here to the priest. And he says to him specifically, the staff and ribbons of the god will fail you. Remember the this, this is important symbolically. The priest comes holding the staff of Apollo, his symbol of divine authorization, and ask in that name to have his daughter back. And Agamemnon says, that staff will do you no good. That is to say, he ignores that Apollo is the god of order. And here is Agamemnon ignoring or blaspheming the god of order, and he will pay. In book one, an old, defeated, supplicating father comes with gifts begging for the return of his child. In book 24, an old, defeated, supplicating father comes bearing gifts, pleading for the return of his child. That's the replay of the thing. Chryses, who's the priest, goes back and prays to Apollo. He calls him Smintheon, which means very rarely referred, uh, Apollo referred to by that name. It means the mouse god because he asks for a plague. And, of course, the mouse is a great bringer of plague. But then the metaphor switches to Apollo using his usual form, which is arrows. And the and the uh, the poetry is really beautiful here. I, Fitzgerald's translation I I like quite a bit. He says Apollo rocked in his anger, descending like night itself. And he let the let his arrows fly. And shortly thereafter, the poem says the pyres burned night and day. Just descended on. And the poem goes on. Nine days the arrows of the god came down broadside upon the army. On the tenth, Achilles called all the ranks to assembly. Now, nine and ten. Nine days of plague on the tenth and assembly. We come into the poem, as became the tradition, in media res, which is in the middle of the thing. Not really in the middle of the thing, towards the end of it. The Trojan War has been going on for nine years. We're now in the tenth year. The, the Iliad covers a period of 51 days towards the end of the war. So the plague lasted nine days, and then there's an assembly. The plague is a symbol for the war. Under, But, but something has changed. The plague is the war, and the war is the plague, Something has changed. They reflect one another. Both the war and the plague were started when an abducted woman was not returned. Paris abducted Helen, the wife of Menelaus, and refused to return her. Agamemnon took the daughter of the priest of Apollo and refused to return her. The war and the plague have the same cause. But what is what is it about it? The poem goes on to say, Achilles fast in battle as a lion rose and set. 
we might ask some priest or some divine or even some fellow good at dreams, for dreams come down from Zeus as well. Why all this anger of the god Apollo? Well, now the soldiers know why. They Remember they murmured and said, better not do it. People know why, but they know why. Uh, their, their knowledge of why, what caused this, is, is uh, semi-conscious. In the same way that we conspire to remain semi-conscious of things that would the full consciousness of which would be too disturbing. So what what Achilles is asking is that we get somebody in here who will make us fully conscious of what we're already semi-conscious of. And then he goes on to say, and this is extremely important, I think, has Apollo some quarrel with us for a failure in vows or hecatomb? A hecatomb is a, is a great blood offering, a great sacrificial offering, it's it's hyperbolic. It really it refers to you know great numbers of cattle being slaughtered and sacrificed to the god, but in a generic sense it means just a wholehearted blood sacrifice. Have we failed somehow in this blood sacrifice? Would mutton burned or smoking goat flesh make him lift the plague? Now what is this? The first instinct of Achilles is this has happened. It's because there has not been enough blood sacrifice or a blood sacrifice that was appropriate, that worked. Now, we think that's just some quaint curiosity. The plague is a symptom of something surfacing within the Greek camp, namely war's contentiousness is about to break out inside the Greek camp. Remember the first line said it began with the division between Agamemnon and Achilles. The war is coming home. Remember Vietnam? The war is coming home. The hatred and division are no longer able to be siphoned off in the enemy's direction exclusively. And after ten weary years of war, the hatred and division is such that it is overflowing those channels and coming back home. And the issue, the immediate issue that's raised is, have we performed the blood sacrifices well enough? That must be the problem. René Girard, who's a, who has studied from a anthropological point of view, blood sacrifice. Speaking of the universality of blood sacrifice in ancient culture, says among other things the following, behind this astonishing paradox, the, the menace of violent action can be discerned. All concepts of impurity stem ultimately from the community's fear of a perpetual cycle of violence arising in its midst. The menace is always the same and provokes the same set of responses the same sacrificial gestures designed to redirect the violence onto inconsequential victims. The function of the ritual is to purify violence. That is, to trick violence into spending itself on victims whose death will provoke no reprisals. On victims whose death will provoke no reprisals because the great fear is the cycle of vengeance the cycle of reprisals and the blood sacrifice 
allows that aggression to flow out the very sight of blood and the act of sacrificing drains off, is cathartic in that way, drains off that aggression. He says, victims whose death will provoke no reprisal. We go back to the word translated wrath, minus, we could translate it enraged reprisal. Or we could translate it the will to avenge. That's what it's about, the will to avenge. Sacrificial violence drains away the aggression onto a victim for whom no one feels the socially disastrous responsibility to revenge. Giard speaks of what he calls the sacrificial crisis. And the sacrificial crisis is precipitated when there's a breakdown of the mysterious relationship between destructive violence and restoring violence. This latter is what in the Christian dispensation is referred to as redemptive suffering. So, Achilles instinctively knows that the first issue is, have there been proper blood sacrifice? The war is coming home. It's not being directed out on tribally inconsequential victims. See, we're just talking about tribes. So they call the soothsayer, the visionary, Colchis. And they say... You know the past and future, what will be and what has been. Tell us, what it, what has angered Apollo? And he says to Achilles, Achilles is the most powerful warrior and the most natural leader. He says to Achilles, I will if you will protect me. Because I may have something to say that some people don't want to hear. He says specifically these lines. A great man in his rage is formidable for underlings. Though he may keep it down, he cherishes the burning in his belly until a reckoning day. Wonderful irony in those words of Colchis because Colchis is speaking of Agamemnon, but Homer is speaking of Achilles. Those words are, are true of both, but particularly true of Achilles. A great man in his rage is formidable for underlings. Though he may keep it down, he cherishes the burning in his belly until a reckoning day. Achilles will sit out this war for most of this poem. Achilles swears that he will defend him, but he goes one step further. Achilles actually says, I will defend you no matter who tries to harm you. Not one of all the army, not Agamemnon, if it is he you mean, though he is first in rank among all the Achaeans. Achilles goes out of his way to mention by name Agamemnon. They are in assembly, tremendous emphasis laid in the heroic code on maintaining your prestige and honor in the pecking order in the eyes of others. Tremendous other directiveness. To mention Agamemnon's name in that regard is already to step into the contest with him. It's to throw the gauntlet down. Even, he says, if you mention Agamemnon. Well, Caucus says, it is the man of prayer whom Agamemnon treated with contempt. He kept his daughter, spurned his gifts. We must take, his, we must take the daughter back. We must offer blood sacrifices. And Agamemnon re replies, right out of Greek tragedy, the poem says, 
the son of Atreus, ruler of the great plain Agamemnon, rose furious. Round his heart resentment welled and his eyes shone like licking fire. You wonder where Aeschylus got it? Huh? <laughs> you visionary of hell have never had a fair I've never had fair play in your eyes and so on and so forth. But then he says, For all of that, Agamemnon, for all of that I will not I excuse me, I will now yield her if it is best. I want the army saved and not destroyed. You must prepare, however, a prize of honor for me and at once. That I may not be left without my portion, I of all Argives, it is not fitting so, while every man of you looks on, my girl goes elsewhere. You see that other directedness, that sense of what to lose face, you see, is to lose everything in this code. I will have to have another. And Achilles says, well, that can't be worked out, you see, because we divided them up already. There aren't any left over. And Achilles says, as soon as we sack Troy, which is going to happen, there are lots of beautiful concubines waiting in there. And then Achilles says, you can have two or three. We'll make it up to you in spades. And Agamemnon says, now. And there you have the issue. Push comes to shove. Agamemnon says to Achilles, I will take a girl myself, your own, or Ias's, or Odysseus's. Take her, yes, to keep. The man I visit may choke with rage. Well, let him. And, of course, Achilles chokes with rage for two-thirds of this poem. Notice, Agamemnon, talking to Achilles, says, yours, or Ias's, or Odysseus's. Great heroes of the Greek expedition. They set out to rectify a wrong. The wrong they set out to rectify was that somebody abducted a woman and wouldn't give her back. And now inside the Greek, Greek camp, they are wrangling over abducted women and refusing to give them back. You see, Yeats, Yeats said, what theme had Homer but original sin? Achilles frowned and looked at Agamemnon and said, You thick-skinned, shameless, greedy fool. Now, notice, Agamemnon had said, Your prize, these, these women are chattels, see, Your prize, or Ias's, or Odysseus's. Achilles, No, no, we joined you, you insolent boar, to please you, fighting for your brother's sake and yours, to get revenge upon the Trojans. You overlooked this dog face and don't care. Now, in the end, you threatened to take my girl, a prize I sweated for and the soldiers gave me. Achilles seizes on this opportunity to draw it, to draw the issue between himself and Agamemnon. Once he says these words, were Agamemnon then to choose Ias's prize, or Odysseus's prize, it would cost him a loss of faith because Achilles has precipitated the issue. He has said, my girl. And why? Because Achilles has been looking for a showdown for a long, long time. And that's what starts to come out in the poem. The long-term resentment of Achilles for Agamemnon. And now he's got a chance to confront him. 
so now it's impossible for Agamemnon to do anything other than confront the issue with Achilles. Now what's happening is that there is a rift in the Achaean camp personified by Achilles and Agamemnon between, I think the best way to see it is between bestowed authority or cultural authority, Agamemnon, and natural authority, Achilles. Natural authority in that he's the most powerful warrior and the most natural leader. And there you have it. And what's happening when those two authorities split and become contentious, it's a symptom of the breakdown of the social order. And there you have it. The whole, the history of the world. This poem's about the history of the world. The split comes, somehow that aggression, our, our cultural devices for getting that aggression sort of safely out of the picture bro breaks down and here it comes back and the split happens along those lines. Cultural authority, natural authority. So what happens is what Rene Girard calls the crisis of distinction. This is a little hard to follow, but I, I want to get it on the record anyway. Girard says, A single principle is at work in primitive religion and classical tragedy alike, a principle implicit but fundamental. Order, peace, and fecundity depend on cultural distinction. It is not these distinctions but the loss of them that gives birth to fierce rivalries and sets members of the same family or social group at one another's throats. There's a great speech in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida in which Ulysses speaks of these distinctions and their importance, referring to them by the word degrees. And the speech is this. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. a breakdown of the distinctions. And the bestowed authority and the natural authorities are at each other's throats. The typical course of this process, I think, is, is the following. Those who are distinguished begin to behave in such a way that the very notion of distinction is sullied and finally called into question. The ideal employed for calling it into question is that of justice. But however unjust the situation and otherwise legitimate the cry for justice, the cry itself can be symptomatic of the collapse of the very standards by which justice can be determined. That blame for all this can be usually laid at the foot of the powerful, neither vindicates the rebels nor assures the rebellion, now suspicious of all distinctions, of achieving a just order without them. Finally, the distinction between justice and equality is effaced. Justice, as Shakespeare said, loses its name. 
and becomes a rhetorical device camouflaging what Friedrich Nietzsche called resentment. Resentment. Justice as a notion becomes impoverished, popularized, trivialized, vulgarized, and finally parodied in the bumper sticker which says, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Achilles inches toward that steep and slippery slope with these words. I have seen more action hand in hand in those assaults than you have, but when the time for sharing comes, the greater share is always yours. Worn out with battle, I carry off some trifle to my ships. Well, this time I make sail for home. Better to take now to my ships. Why linger, cheated of my winnings, to make wealth for you? The value that's behind this ostensibly is justice. The genuine motivation is resentment, resentment. Agamemnon says, No officer is hateful to my sight as you are, none given like you to faction as to battle. Now there's the rub. The danger of socially aroused aggression is presented in that line. What is meant for battle can, if not continually ritualized and directed outward, fuel faction within the tribe. And the more of it that is awakened, the more those rituals must be very sophisticated and very frequently reapplied in order to make sure that larger and larger doses of that aggression are, are find ways outside of the community. Shakespeare's Enobarbus says of Antony and Caesar, that which is the strength of their amity shall prove the immediate author of their variance. That is to say, a common enemy unites and their aggression commingles going in that direction, but it awakens the aggression. And if the, and if the rituals for for exporting that aggression ever break down, you've got, you've got the civil war. That which is the strength of their amity shall prove the immediate author of their variance. Now we get a look at Agamemnon's re resentment towards Achilles. He said, I myself will call for Briseis, that's her name, at your hut and take her, flower of young girls that she is, your prize, he says he's going to call for her. He doesn't. He sends somebody else to get her. But then he says, to show you here and now who is the stronger and make the next man sick at heart if any think of claiming equal place with me. So there's the cultural authority looking with nervously at the natural authority. And then something very interesting happens, and particularly the Fitzgerald translation is helpful here. A pain like grief weighed on the son of Peleus, that's Achilles, and in his shaggy chest this way and that the passion of his heart ran. Should he draw a long sword from hip, stand off the rest, and kill in single combat the great son of Atreus, or hold his rage in check and give it time? 
It says a pain like grief. And it is a there there's a hint here in the text of a grief over the loss of Briseis, his concubine. But you have to remember that he killed her husband and her brothers in order to get her and drug her kicking and screaming away from her home. So when we when we're told of Achilles' fondness, we must put it in the context of his personality. I think there is an element of genuine fondness here, uh, but we have to see it in its overall context. A pain like grief. Beautiful translation because it is a pain like grief, but Achilles doesn't know how to deal with grief. And so what will he do? Well, he will give it time. Well, shall he kill Agamemnon or not and wait and give it time? He will nurse this thing, this pain like grief. He will find the wherewithal to turn grief into grievance. Now there you have one of the heroic instincts. Grief has to be suffered. Grief comes onto one or into one. The instinctive hero will intuitively know how to turn his grief into grievance so that the energy can go back out into the world again and the aggression can go back out into the world again. And he can create drama or melodrama out of that energy out into the world again instead of feeling grief. So Achilles is the one, the archetypal hero, who knows how to turn grief into grievance. And this is symptomatic of his instincts. There's a Greek word, arete, which means something like, it's the superlative of the word for aristocrat. It means something like the potential for greatness. It's the kind, it's what fuels, it's what provides the energy for the great daring acts that are, that win renown and glory. You must have this, you must have arete operating in order to perform great acts. And because he's the paradigmatic hero, Achilles knows which grievance will fuel his arite. And he knows how instinctively to surcharge that grievance so that it will provide him with the most energy. And of course, that is vengeance. So many of the tales are of vengeance. Go see any of the Rambo or any <laughs> vengeance. See? That's why the Hebrew prophets kept having to say, remember, vengeance is the Lord's. Because it, it, it tasted a little bit like nectar when people had it. You know, it was just wonderful. You wanted it. Bloodlust. And, and Achilles knows how to turn his emotions in that direction so as to provide him the arete he needs to behave heroically. So, for Achilles, a divided heart means a half-drawn sword. Beautiful poetic image. 
And as this tumult swayed him, as he slid the big blade slowly from the sheath, Athena came to him from the sky. Stepping up behind him, visible to no one except Achilles, gripped his red-gold hair. Beautiful image, isn't it? Homer has provided the goddess here because he needs Achilles to be an unrestrained, impulsive type, but he wants to add something to his wrath, namely the element of brooding. And he can't have an impulsive type and a brooder without, without introducing somebody else, a divine force that causes the brooding. Otherwise, he's not really impulsive. So it's wonderful Athena is the one that keeps him from killing Agamemnon. And she says, let him have a lashing with words instead. Now, what makes violent words in Greek tragedy so cathartic for the Greek audience is that they understood because they were closer to it than we are what a short gap exists between violent words and violent deeds. William Carlos Williams said, without politeness, without a tight lid on our big mouths at certain critical moments, it is a quick plunge into the old swamp we once called home. So Achilles, it says, he stayed his massive hand upon the silver pommel and the blade of his great weapon slid back in the scabbard. Beautiful poetry. And he turned on Agamemnon and feel the repressed violence. Sack of wine, you with a cur's eyes and an antelope heart, you've never had the kidney to buckle on armor among the troops or make a sortie with picked men. Oh, no, that way death might lie, safer by God in the middle of the army, is it not? Achilles has a four-wheel drive with a bumper sticker on the back which said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I fear not, for I'm the meanest son of a bitch in the valley. <laughs> if the blood sacrifices and cult rituals for channeling violence into non-tribal and non-avenging victims is working, then the social code which pretends to be the arbiter of these matters, can take credit for a smoothly running social order. But when these more primitive mechanisms break down, the social code is revealed for what it is, a very weak legal force. The symbol of the social code here in the Iliad is the scepter, the staff. Remember the staff that the priest of Apollo had? Agamemnon ignored it. Achilles, here is what I say, my oath upon it by this great staff. And then he holds the staff up. Look, leaf or shoot it cannot sprout again. Once lopped away from the log it left behind in the timbered hills, it cannot flower, peeled of bark and leaves. It's an interesting symbol because Achilles is going to be stripped. He is going to be torn away from the only thing that can give him glory, namely the, the army and the combat, and he will be left. But that's a minor illusion here. He goes on. Instead, Achaean officers in council take it in hand by turns when they observe by the will of Zeus due order in debate. That was the other function of the staff. It's like the gavel. 
the speaker at the assembly holds the staff. It is it bestows on the speaker while he speaks the authority to speak in council. It's incipient democracy in this system. Notice that for Achilles, the thing he points out about the staff is that it's lopped off, it can't grow, it's not green, it's dead. Which is to say, he regards the staff of bestowed authority or cultural authority as a symbol not of the vitality at the cultural level, but a symbol of the lack of vitality at the natural level. And that's as it should be because he's the natural authority. He regards the symbol of the cultural authority as, as a symbol of the lack of vitality at the natural level. Let this be what I swear by then. I swear a day will come when every Achaean soldier will groan to have Achilles back. That day shall no more, you shall no more prevail on me than this dry wood should flourish. Driven though you are, and though a thousand men perish before the killer Hector, you will eat your heart out, raging with remorse for this dishonor done by you to the bravest of Achaeans. He hurled the staff studded with golden nails before him on the ground. That's the great symbolic act. That is the symbol of authority, the symbol of order, symbol of order thrown on the ground. Then he sat down and fury filled Agamemnon looking across at him. So there you have the division and the symbol of authority is now tossed aside. Having blasphemously disregarded the authority of the staff of the God of Apollo, Agamemnon has given, given in to hubris and provoked Achilles to perform the final demonstration of the irrelevancy of the symbol of order. Without these frail checks, the op operating on at the level of the social order, it all starts to fall apart. The cultural authority is now has now been called fundamentally into question. And uh, Homer wants to tell us what the issue is, so Nestor, the old wise one, rose, whose arguments are sweeter than honey, and he said, a black day, this. The war has come home. And then the summation of his advice is, Lord Agamemnon, do not deprive him of the girl. Renounce her. The army had allotted her to him. Achilles, for your part, do not defy your, cap your king and captain. No one vies an honor with him who holds authority from Zeus. You have more prowess for a goddess for you. His power over men surpasses yours. There it is. Cultural authority, natural authority. And Nestor is trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Now, there's even more irony because when Nestor says, he, he who holds authority from Zeus, the literal Greek says, He's the sceptered king. Nestor may not have noticed what Achilles just did with the scepter. Agamemnon says to Achilles, you've been trying to seize authority from me all along, haven't you? See, he sees it the other way. Achilles says, I will not wrangle in arms with you or anyone, though I am robbed of what is given me. And that's because he needs to have his offense maximized. He's going to give it time. 
They quarreled this way, face to face, and then broke off the assembly by the ships. Achilles made his way to his squadron and his quarters, Patroclus by his side, with his companion. To save his honor, Achilles has walked away from the battlefield, which is the only place on which he can finally and firmly establish his honor. And that's the catch-22 of the tragedy of Achilles. It's a symptomatic contradiction that goes to the heart of the contradiction of the heroic code itself. The violence of war is a curse which destroys all values. But only on the field of war can those values be convincingly demonstrated. That's the contradiction in the heroic code. The issue is the issue of mortality or immortality. Everybody in Homer's world will die and go to a place called Hades. And Hades is like what W.C. Fields put on his tombstone. I'd almost rather be in Philadelphia. The question of immortality had to do with living in the memory of men to perform great deeds that would be immortalized. And this was key to the whole heroic code, what Ernest Becker calls the immortality project. To leave a memory that will live on. So all of this craziness in the Iliad is really a longing for immortality under the only conditions in which they saw it possible. John Cowper Powis wrote something which I read a number of years ago and disagreed with, and then when I began studying the Iliad in detail, I remembered it and remembered it and reread it, and I don't disagree with it anymore. In what respect does Homer's Iliad surpass Dante and Shakespeare and Milton and Goethe? I would answer at once. It is not nearly as imaginative as Dante. It is not nearly as dramatic as Shakespeare. It is not nearly as eloquent as Milton. It is not nearly as philosophical as Faust. And yet it is a greater poem than the Inferno or King Lear or Paradise Lost or Faust. Why is this? In what way can it possibly surpass these masterpieces? I will tell you at once. It is more like what happened, is happening, and will happen to us all from the very beginning in our history in this world until the end of human life upon this earth. John Cowper Powis. I couldn't begin to understand the Iliad until Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, provided the tool, which was his understanding of something called the twin ontological motive. The first is the need to affirm oneself, to assert oneself, to affirm oneself. And the second is the need to surrender oneself to something greater than oneself. Now, Achilles now has a cause for wrath. He has availed himself of the honor code's mechanism for releasing that great energy. He is fully capable of asserting himself. The first ontological motive is fully in place. But such self-assertion would only satisfy one of the ontological motives. As of yet, he has no cause greater than himself.
For him, the second ontological motive does not yet exist. The image of him with a half-drawn sword is perfect. Lacking the second ontological motive, he is heroically stymied. Just as Achilles, as a personification of the heroic dilemma, has unconsciously and instinctively orchestrated things so as to awaken the first ontological motive, now he will even more unconsciously orchestrate thing, things so as to awaken the second ontological motive. And it says, Achilles and Patroclus walk toward the ships to sit on the war's sideline. I'll conclude with the words of James Wright, modern American poet. What he says is so appropriate to this scene of Achilles and Patroclus walking off. Walking here lonely and strange now, I must find a grave to prod my wrath back to its just devotion. Bear that in mind as the poem goes on. Walking here lonely and strange now, I must find a grave to prod my wrath back to its just devotion. Grave. G-R-A-V-E. And it's the search Achilles needs before he can join the war again. He needs to have that second ontological motive activated. Namely, his killing must be in service of something greater than himself. However primitively understood that might be. And if he finds that second ontological motive, all of that rage will flow out.